0: Let's face it, this year, everyone is stressed.
1: We have this unique shared experience together right now where our baseline stress as a world is now a whole nother level up.
0: The global pandemic has seen record demand for mental health services. Depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, eating disorders, All of them have been exacerbated by the stress and isolation brought about by COVID-19.
1: Somehow you've got to find those silver linings in those moments and realize that it is not gonna be perfect. And giving yourself the grace to fail and congratulating yourself sometimes on just making it through the day is okay.
0: On today's program, Mental Health and the Pandemic. Also, a reflection on heroes and hypocrisy in healthcare. On the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Hello, I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for joining us today. It has been impossible to ignore this year. Mental health has made headlines. Making news now tonight at 9 a recent study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that depression in adults has tripled
2: across the country during the
1: one third crisis. of Americans are showing signs of anxiety or depression during
2: the coronavirus pandemic or well, more teens and preteens are becoming depressed amid the pandemic for teens. We've seen lots of questions and concerns pertaining to stress and anxiety over COVID-19.
1: I know that I am dealing with some form of low grade depression, not just because of the quarantine quarantine, but because of the racial strife.
2: I think a lot of folks are experiencing some anxiety and some stress naturally um, as we're in the face of something that's really unprecedented um, and just a lot of uncertainty.
0: No doubt about it, 2020 has been a stressful year. Joining us now to talk about the stresses and the mental health impact of the pandemic is Robin Henderson. She's a clinical Psychologist and the Chief Executive for Behavioral Health for Providence, Oregon. Welcome.
1: It's a pleasure to be here today, Son. How are
0: you? I'm doing well, thank you. It's really nice for you to ask.
1: It's also one of the most important questions we could ask each other these days. How are you? And then taking a minute to really listen to the answer. We're all sharing, we have this unique shared experience together right now where Our stress levels, our baseline stress as a world is now a whole nother level up. So if you take this, you know, platform of stress now that you've added to everything else that you do, then you're going to top your life on top of that platform. And for many people, that stress level was already at the top, right? So they've added in now yet another layer of stress on top of that. So if you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling unwell, if you're feeling disoriented, welcome to the human condition right now. That's valid for everybody.
0: Do you have any advice on the conversation that follows the question, how are you doing?
1: Yeah. I think the biggest advice that follows when you ask somebody how they're doing is to tell them how you're doing and be honest about it. Don't be afraid to own the fact that you're stressed. Don't be afraid to own the fact that... When you got up this morning, you you feel like you're living in Groundhog's Day, because that's kind of how we all feel, uh, that you want, you know, I yearn for the day when I can hug people. I'm a hugger. Uh, I yearn for the day when my house can be filled with the crowds of teenagers who used to come here all the time and hang out, which now would be considered a vector, right? Um, I yearn for the day when my kid can go to a college party which you can't do right now. I yearn for the day when my mother, who's 91 years old, can come up and hang out in my living room and I don't have to worry about which kids my kids are going to bring home because they might not be in the bubble. Mm -hmm. I miss all of that.
0: I saw one study that indicated that demand on mental health services had risen threefold yep. in the last year. Are you are you seeing that degree of demand at Providence, Oregon?
1: Oh, yeah. Not only Providence, Oregon, but Providence all across our system. We're seeing increased demand for mental health services, whether it's talk therapy, uh, whether it's uh, psychiatric medications, uh, across all lines of service. I'll give you a really great example. Early on in the pandemic, um, we started to see this increase in adolescents uh, needing eating disorders treatment. And at first, we thought it was just a blip. You know, kids were at home. Their families were were seeing that they had um, eating disorders that had previously existed. And, you know, we we just kind of wrote it off to kind of a proximity issue, right? Families were going to see it. Kind of like what happens for us in eating disorders in the summertime. Well, we're six months into this, and we're seeing adolescent eating disorders at a scale we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that development as what I believe is probably part of the outgrowth of the isolation that COVID-19 has created for our kids. I worry about our youth mental health. That probably, more than any other, other place in mental health, I worry about our youth and looking at those numbers of that service uh, right now today makes me just wonder, what about the youth who are struggling with anxiety, depression? What are we going to see, you know, six, eight, nine, ten 10 months from now in terms of rates of youth suicide? Oregon already, the number one leading cause of death in Oregon for youth 14 to 24 years old is suicide more than accidents. Overtook it two years ago. So... What are we going to see a year from now?
0: How are you all responding to that?
1: Well, uh, early on in the pandemic, um, I mean, really early on, you're talking within the first two weeks, we pivoted our services to tele, to video, however we could. And within a matter of weeks, all of our providers had cameras and screens and Zoom accounts. And this was not an easy lift. We went from, like, in February, we had maybe less than 100 televisits totally for behavioral health in Oregon. You know, not many. There were some where we had rural communities. We had primarily seniors, homebound seniors that I had a psychiatrist doing some televisits on. But it was not a common thing. And uh, I was asking uh, somebody just earlier today, how many televisits did we do in the month of July? More than 7,800. And that's through Zoom, Tele, all those other types of things. He said, yeah, but that's not quite accurate because it doesn't include our substance use disorders programs. I don't have those numbers in there yet. And I'm thinking to myself, 7,800, you know, do the math out there. In the last six months, Providence as a system has done nearly 140,000 Tele visits in behavioral health alone. That's an incredible number.
0: Do you see that it's perhaps going to have a lasting impact on the practice? I know that a year ago, the idea of telehealth visits for almost any sort of health care, but especially for mental health services, were difficult to arrange. Um, insurance companies weren't really behind them. Health systems weren't really behind them. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. we've seen the value of it. Do you, do you think it's going to change the way... Mental health is practiced going forward, perhaps lessen the stigma of seeking mental health care.
1: Definitely. I think that we've just changed the conversation about mental health. When you look at the ability to get to a therapist now, think about it before, you'd have to go arrange to take time off from your job, drive a half an hour, find a place to park, uh, get to your appointment, and then drive back. And all of that process of doing that would take a whole lot longer than the 50 minutes that you were in your therapist's office. And I guarantee you, your first five to 10 minutes, you're thinking about what you left at work. And the last five to 10 minutes, you're thinking about the commute you've got back to go back to work. And so you've lost a good portion of your therapeutic hour. And what we see now is that people are able to show up for therapy at a time that works for them in a way that works for them. Um, it's not perfect. It doesn't work for everything. Um, and, and eating disorders is a really great example. We found that, yes, we tried to do some eating disorders work via tele, and we had to early on, but we had to pretty quickly figure out how we got people back in person, because that in-person connection... Um, was part of, a, of what allowed us to observe dynamics and to to be able to to see different types of things For family systems work especially having the ability to see a family in person is really super helpful. Yeah. But for general being able to get your mental health checkup to be able to enter into individual therapy to be able to do some of that yeah. work, we've changed the conversation forever
0: right. One thing I've been aware of, both in my own therapeutic relationship, but in others that I've seen with friends who are in therapy, that um, during this last year, people who do have that relationship with a therapist have been taking what they have learned over the years and have learned in particular about dealing with the stress of the pandemic and sharing it with other people. I've seen a... Sharing of the wealth. I'm, I'm curious if you've noticed that.
1: I see a lot of people talking about their own therapeutic experiences these days. Uh, you're absolutely right. This is a complete uh, share the wealth, share what it is that you've learned, but also share yourself. People are admitting for the first time that they've been in therapy, that they've got issues. They're telling their story and they're owning their own mental health. In a very different way, you see that on Instagram, you see it on Facebook, uh, you hear it in podcasts where celebrities are now coming out and talking about, well, yeah, I'm in therapy. Who isn't in therapy? I mean, you know, yes, we've done that. It's it's something that people are owning as part of personal growth and development, and even part of of really health in general. I was talking the other day about the importance of a mental health screening. You know, every year you go out and you get your your breast cancer screening, your colon cancer screening, all those other types of preventative things that we do. Well, how about a yearly mental health screening where you sit down with your behavioral health provider in primary care and take a depression test, take an anxiety test and start to get in touch with yourself and understand that depression can impact any of us. I mean, current rates, we know one in five people will struggle with a mental illness in their lifetime. And I just saw a CDC study that is that is talking about half of Americans right now have some type of identifiable, at least symptom of a mental health condition, if not, you know, a full-on mental health condition, One half of us. And I think that's probably underestimated.
0: Yeah. There's no getting away from the enormity of the impact. It raises, of course, the question of how are the caregivers doing, which I'd like to get to. But I want to ask about, because we've touched on it earlier and I don't want to lose track of that thread, Um, I I want to talk about the comorbidities. Um, We've talked about depression, but I'm curious about depression and substance use, depression and anxiety, depression and personality disorders, where isolation would be especially difficult. Help us understand how people are being helped in those particular instances?
1: You know, when we look at especially things like substance use disorders, right there, uh, adding substance use disorders as a, a as a category, um, this has become one of the most endemic uh, coping mechanisms people have. Uh, my nightly glass slash bottle of wine, ability to, uh, in Oregon, you know, we have medical marijuana. Well, now you can get your medical marijuana pretty much delivered. Uh, You know, not medical marijuana anymore, just general marijuana. Uh, But using substances to numb out and get away from the anxiety, the depression, the stressors that we're feeling. Uh, I don't want to take away the healthy use of those types of things. But there's a fine line between the healthy use of substances and using substances to cope and avoid in a dysfunctional way. I think we're going to see substance use disorders at a much higher rate much, much higher rate coming out of this. And I worry about situations where families are, are isolated together and somebody is developing a substance use disorder that may be impacting their spouse, their children, all of those other types of things. That's all happening now in isolation. Mm-hmm. And when that happens in isolation, that's going to lead to increases in things like domestic violence and child abuse. Uh, yes, we're seeing that calls are down in many areas, but it's not because this stuff's not happening. It's because people don't have, in my opinion, people aren't aren't having the ability to, to get out and have that mirror of another person to be able to see and go, wow, this really isn't healthy. This really isn't right. You know, when is the last time that we had the ability to do that? Right. So that comorbidity, I think, is probably one of the scariest. Yeah. When I look at the issue of social isolation and that impact on depression, anxiety, uh, all of the different pieces of mental illness, we see increase in suicidal thinking, suicidal thoughts, that feeling of this is never going to end and I'm so isolated and alone. Why am I here? And that increase in suicidal thinking in isolation is really, really dangerous. And it's more important than ever that if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, understand that there's someone right here to talk to you. There's someone at the National Suicide Hotline, at Lines for Life, at, at Youthline, at all of those other types of things. Because those types of thinking, that spiral of thinking that leads us to, down that path of suicidal ideation, that's a really, really, really um, dangerous place to go alone. And reaching out for help and talking with someone, or even using something like crisis text line, you know, texting with someone about that, Mm -hmm. having someone help and intervene and change that thought path, that thought process is more important than ever.
0: Yeah. Do you have any advice for anyone who is in a relationship with someone who may express a desire to harm themselves in terms of taking those sorts of statements seriously and what to do when someone shares with you a desire to end their life?
1: You know, the biggest advice when someone shares with you the desire to end their life is to take them seriously. That's a cry for help. That's a definite, then let's get some help. Let me help you. Um, let's call your primary care provider and get you an appointment with a behavioral health provider right now. I'm going to stay with you until we do. Um, why don't we call the National Suicide Hotline? I'm going to stay on the line until we get to somebody. Um, but I'm going to make absolutely sure that you get connected to someone today, um, I'm going to make sure that you have someone to talk to so that you're safe and okay. I may not be able to come over to your house and sit down at your kitchen table and have a cup of coffee, but I bet we could sit in the backyard at a safe physical distance apart and talk. But ensuring that that you connect and you you know persuade them and you get them connected to help. That's the biggest thing we can do. And you can do that virtually. You can also do that in person. And if you're really concerned about something, someone and you stop hearing from them and you're very seriously concerned, please contact their local law enforcement and ask for a welfare check.
0: Take it seriously. Take it seriously. That's Robin Henderson. She's the chief executive for behavioral health for Providence, Oregon. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline provides free and confidential support 24-7 for people in distress. Call the lifeline at 800-273-8255. I'll repeat that number when we return in just a minute with more of our conversation. Stay with us. This is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. Still to come this half hour Heroism and Hypocrisy, a Hospice Leader's Frank Look at Medicine with 2020 Vision. A conversation with Dr. Ira Biak is just ahead. But now let's continue our conversation about mental health and the COVID 19 pandemic. The phone number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800. 800- Two seven 273 8255 You'll find free and confidential support for people in distress 24-7 at 800-273-8255. We also have a list of additional mental health resources for you on our website at hearmenowpodcast.org. That's hearmenowpodcast, all one word, dot org. My guest today is clinical psychologist Robin Henderson. Robin, let's talk about caregivers. How are your colleagues holding up?
1: It's rough being a caregiver. It's rough. We've been on the front lines now since March when this all began, and it's been relentless and it hasn't let up, and it's been... A roller coaster, depending on what department you're in, for many people, they're in all kinds of PPE all day long, not able to, you know, it's uncomfortable, it's hot, it's sweaty, it leaves marks on your face. Um, you're not able to interact in the way that you normally would. You've had to change everything you do. And that's before we get to the point of our caregivers who are in the COVID units. But just looking at all of that and in that space, it's stressful to work in healthcare these days. Because then we have the whole cohort of people whose entire jobs have changed. You know, not everybody in healthcare right now works on the front lines of seeing patients. We have a lot of people who work in the offices to support the people who are seeing patients, to ensure that people have follow up care, that they have care management, that that all of the things that keep the billing systems moving appropriately are functioning. And all those people's worlds have been disrupted, and they're now working from home or other places, so they don't have the connection to people in the workplace, but they also sometimes have almost like that survivor's guilt of not being out there in the front line. And do I have a right to feel like I'm an essential healthcare worker? And And my message to all of us who are working in healthcare is it doesn't matter where you work, where you are, your job is valid, you're valid, and you're impacted by this just as much as the person who's at the bedside. We're all in this together. Uh, and at times it's almost kind of like we've got to get to the point where we're playing tag on the relay team. We've got to find a way to recover and renew and revitalize so we can keep doing this every day because
0: yeah. it's tough. Any practical advice for preventing burnout in a especially difficult time?
1: You know, it goes to the advice that we're, that we're really giving uh, to everyone these days. The best therapeutic tool you've got is to talk about it. If you sit alone and isolate with your thoughts and think about um, all of the things that are going on and all of, you know, and I'll give you a really tangible example. Um, we were talking about uh, often in a unit you work a 12-hour shift. And so there's a day shift person and a night shift person. And imagine a world where the day shift person has been on all day long working on the unit and has learned some different things about what's gone well, what hasn't gone well. On an ideal planet, I would love for that day shift person to be able to have a conversation with the person coming on shift to be able to say, you know, here's what went well for me today. Here's what I learned today. And and here's how I'm feeling. And for that night shift person to go, I heard you. I got that. Thank you. And they're going to work their shift and come in the next morning. And that same interaction happens. So we have that connection of being heard, that connection of being able to go, what went well? What did I
0: learn? A couple of weeks ago, we had Maureen Nash on and she talked about the PACE program in Portland and the value of interdisciplinary teams. And one of the strengths she mentioned is um, not only being able to share information, but reevaluating your own treatment goals based not only on your assessment, but on your colleagues' assessments as well. And I I had to laugh because Sally Tisdale added that the strength of a PACE program is that you're in a lot of meetings, and the drawback is that you're in a lot of meetings. So it (laughs) it does take some effort to have those sorts of conversations that are going to affect change, but boy, I bet they're useful.
1: Oh, they're incredibly useful. But it's also that affirmation that that you really get of, even though the day was hard, here are the wins we had. Here are the things that went well. And giving yourself permission to grieve the losses. That's one of the hardest parts about all of this right now is that there's so much loss. And it's not just the loss of human life. There's the loss of relationships. There's the loss of experiences and milestones and events. I mean, think for a minute about... All of the kids who graduated high school and college this year and all of the milestones that come with graduating high school and college and the events, the the proms, the celebrations, the family gatherings, um, the ability to hug and celebrate this humongous achievement. And all of that had to be done differently. Didn't make it less important. Didn't make it less meaningful. It's just different. And we need to give ourselves permission to grieve some of those types of losses. All the people who had weddings and and anniversaries and celebrations and reunions planned, those are the milestones and markers that that help us um, evaluate who we are, um, refresh, renew, celebrate. Those things are still important, and we need to find ways to do that, because that's part of our uh, humanity that's going to keep us healthy. So how do we focus on... Being able to grieve the fact that I'm not going to be able to do things the way I wanted to, that I had dreamed out in my mind, and push that energy then into how is it going to be different? What can I do that's going to be unique Um, and and make it special? I, I think the other thing to really think about is that it's not just the pandemic that we're dealing with. We're in a highly politically charged environment right now. And that also plays a role in our mental health. People are polarized uh, all over the place in this political conversation and in the largest social justice movement that, that we've had in, in my lifetime, easily, easily in my lifetime. Um, and how we look at this uh, now, that's impacting all of us. So we have to think about how we show up in these conversations where we can give space for people to have differing opinions and yet, still be able to get through all of this together, and know that that we've got a lot of healing to do as a country, as a nation. There's some vile rhetoric that weighs heavy on my heart, and I know weighs heavy on the heart of my colleagues and my friends, uh, especially my black friends, my my Latina friends, my all all of the different people that I interact with and love. And we need to really figure out where we stand up and show up in this space.
0: There are so many examples of bad behavior in the public sphere at the moment. People for the last few years have been openly questioning whether people at the highest level of leadership are psychopaths or sociopaths.
1: Every rule we learned in kindergarten, don't call people names, don't be a bully, play nice in the sandbox, share, support each other, Every rule we learned in kindergarten has been broken at the very highest levels of our government. And when that is the example that our children are following, we've got a lot of damage to clean up and fix.
0: Yeah, you know, if my social media feed is to be trusted, the population of people that I think I feel especially sorry for are working parents of school-aged children who are home, working from home, educating kids at home. I don't know how parents are doing it. I don't know how they're holding it together, to be honest.
1: With paper clips, string, and uh, the belief that their children are their future. And somehow you've got to find those silver linings in those moments and recognize and realize that it is not going to be perfect. <laughs> there are no perfect inter- interactions right now in a school aged child who's being homeschooled unintentionally (laughs) during a pandemic in the middle of the political rancor that we're living in and giving yourself as a parent the grace to fail giving your kids the grace to not meet all the schedule and all the expectations and all the everything and congratulating yourself sometimes on just making it through the day is okay um we're going to figure this out, and at some point we've got to, you know, if if we wanted to find a way to intervene in helicopter parents, then I think this is probably the best way to intervene in helicopter parents because it's really hard to control everything in an environment that is so random and chaotic that that we really have to figure out how our behavior and our expectations impact the anxiety our children are feeling. They're already feeling it. Sure. So... Take it down a notch. Take your expectations down a notch. And let's give each other a break.
0: That's good advice. The restrictions that came with the pandemic really started to kick in in the spring. So we had spring and summer when the isolation was made a little bit more bearable because Mm -hmm. for most of us, we were able to be outside more and to socialize at a distance outdoors and pursue outdoor recreation And so for those of us who live in a climate where that's going to be more difficult in the colder months um, that are coming up, the producers here are thinking about in two weeks having a program that dovetails with this one and talks about strategies for making it through the winter Uh with the pandemic. So I'm going to give you the first at bat and see (laughs) if you have any great ideas for coping with our first COVID winter.
1: I've been thinking a lot about that uh, because it's going to start to get dark and cold. But we kind of had a preview of this with the wildfires here in Oregon where people really couldn't go outside. And, and you really had to stay um, in your home uh, or wherever it was that you were. Making sure that you've got that schedule of times that you're going to interact with people virtually as much as you can. Um it might be a really great time to join a virtual book club, to join a virtual support group. You know, going back to, if you think that you've got a problem with substance use disorders, now is a really great time to start looking at uh, an online support group for people who are wondering if maybe they do. Um, maybe it's time to learn quilting and, and joining a quilting class online or, or taking a ballet class online because you want to learn dance. But the biggest things we got to do is we got to eat healthy. We got to move our bodies however it is. And we need to interact with each other socially. Those are the biggest things we need to do right now. Mm-hmm. Moving your body, getting exercise. Uh, is it different when you're inside and, and you don't have that great home gym? Absolutely. But I guarantee you there's a YouTube class that's going to show you how you could take a bottle of water and maybe five feet of space and get a really great workout. We, It's really important to move our bodies and to make sure that we're we're doing that because that's part of what helps our, our mental health. Yeah, We've got to be more intentional, and I guess that's the biggest thing. You have to attack this intentionally. So Thanksgiving means that you're probably not going to get on a plane and fly to Grandma's house this year. What are you going to do? Are you all going to, like, cook the same recipes together and then have a Zoom call where you share your, your turkey failure, right? <laughs> you know, how do we make this potentially fun? Right. Because our holidays aren't going to be the same. How are we going to make them different? Are we going to do a cookie exchange by everybody cooks a, a five dozen cookies and you mail a dozen to— each of your five friends, so everybody gets five dozen different cookies. Uh, Let's get creative and let's share those ideas through social media. I mean, that's the other thing. Digital wellness is more important than ever because social media is how we connect with each other these days. That's part of our social framework and social network. So how do you show up online? Are you one of the people who's out there railing at everybody in this hotly contested political environment? Or are you one of the people who's out there sharing pictures of goats and kittens and puppies and that that cute little dog on the couch behind you uh, and trying to find a way to to flood the world with some positivity.
0: I want to invite folks who are listening, if you're interested in taking part in the upcoming podcast about strategic thinking for getting through the winter, drop us an email and do it soon. Write to us at org, and we'll collect those ideas and share them on the next podcast, but do it soon. That email address again is humancaring@providence.org Robin Henderson, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really great conversation, lots of good information, and I'm grateful for you sharing the wealth.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Sean. It's been my pleasure to talk with you. Uh, it's, it's so important that we talk about our mental health and that we normalize this conversation because we're all in this together and we need each other more than ever. It's part of how we're all gonna be well.
0: Robin Henderson is a clinical psychologist and the chief executive for behavioral health for Providence, Oregon. She spoke with us from Portland. (music) The Journal of Palliative Medicine in its November issue Publishes a note from the editor titled Heroism and Hypocrisy: Seeing Our Reflection with 2020 Vision. The piece was written by Dr. Ira Bayak, who in addition to being the founder of the Providence Institute for Human Caring, is a member of the editorial board of the journal. Dr. Bayak joins me now from his home in Missoula, Montana. Hi, Ira.
2: Hello, Sean. Nice to be with you.
0: Nice to be with you. You begin your piece by noting a cultural shift that's come with the COVID-19 pandemic, a greater appreciation for the work of palliative care providers. You encourage your colleagues to own the expressions of gratitude that are being shown them rather than deflecting the compliments. You write, hospice's new H word is hero. Stripped of the illusion of security, the public sees the immediate and enduring value of palliative care, home health care, nursing home care, and hospice. I hope we own it.
2: What will owning it look like? Really at its base, owning it means not disowning it. Acknowledging that the attention to uh, what the work that we do and the way we are caring for the sickest and most vulnerable patients in our communities is important, is is modeling uh, uh, the highest of human values. That, that's really important. You know, the work that hospice people do has always been heroic. I, I've often analogized the uh, hospice work to uh, the work of firemen. You know, where, where everybody else is running as fast as they w- can away from um, serious illness, dying, caregiving, grieving, uh, we rush in. And my hospice colleagues have earned my enduring respect simply for that. We choose to walk close to the fire where we may get singed, right? That's really important. And, and so accepting, saying you're welcome uh, for acknowledgement of that service really moves us forward, I think, as a culture to begin to sort of, you know, grow the rest of the way up around acknowledging the importance of, of human caring through the very end of life.
0: Absolutely. And it's, it's wonderful to see that appreciation being shown to your colleagues. But the pandemic has also revealed blind spots, flaws, and failures. You write, the pandemic has demonstrated glaring health disparities suffered by people of color, people who are poor, and those who live or work in crowded conditions. They have always been there, well-studied and documented, but somehow tolerated. And you point out that healthcare as an industry has responded. How has it responded?
2: So as an industry, healthcare has been stung by the current data on the health disparities related to COVID, the prevalence of infection, the higher risks of death and has responded earnestly, frankly. I, I don't want to in any way diminish that. Um, I don't know of any healthcare company that doesn't have some diversity, equity, and inclusion task force or new initiative. The number of webinars, education programs, panel discussions uh, are, are, are really impressive. And I, and I really do think it's well-intended and serious um, and to this point, woefully insufficient. Uh, what I try to call attention to is uh, something that I, I think so many of us in healthcare know but are tiptoeing around, which is that we do have endemic um, contributions to uh, sexism and racism that we've somehow also tolerated and that has been you know part of perpetuating this particular pandemic and and that is the way we, compensate and treat the lowest paid workers in our in our companies, so the direct care workers, the personal care aides, the certified nursing assistants, um, the housekeepers. They have always gotten short shrift. This pandemic is simply making it harder to ignore <laughs> that that's part of the factors that are causing suffering and disproportionate disparities in in outcomes and, oh, by the way, is perpetuating the pandemic. Yeah. Ira, you know that my
0: background is in Benedictine monasticism. And in his Rule for Monks, St. Benedict tells the abbot to pay attention to what the youngest monks have to say. And I'm hearing a lot from med students on these issues. And I don't know if you've noticed that, but it seems like there's a lot of agitation coming from some of the youngest members of the healthcare community.
2: If you haven't become inured to it, what I call attention to is pretty darn obvious. With those of us with seniority have somehow built filters to allow us to avoid these obvious, glaring inequities in healthcare. Your
0: own experience clinically, you must have run into this over and over again with with um, bath aides and nursing aides and housekeeping folks who intimately know patients as well probably as anyone else in the healthcare team.
2: We all do, they work alongside of us. Many of them, however, uh, functionally remain anonymous, we don't know their names often. You know, it's call housekeeping because this room needs to be, you know, turned over, uh, cleaned and gotten ready for the next patient. In writing this piece, I decided to just shine a light, you know, uh, and see what is the uh, median salary for a personal care assistant. It's, you know, it's $11.55 an hour or $24,000 a year. A certified uh, nursing assistant, is fourteen twenty-five an hour, or twenty-nine thousand dollars a year? Um, that's that's below a living wage in every community in the country, and I point out in the article. You 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 know you don't have to kind of ponder what a living wage is. There's actually nowadays an app for that. You you can go to the living wage calculator from MIT and plug in your zip code and find out what it is for a married couple, both of whom are working with two children or a single parent with two children. So, you know, at $24,000 a year, uh, direct care workers can't make ends meet. They have to work in more than one facility, which has been a real problem here. Mm. It is sexism and racism. It is not a coincidence that uh, 86% of direct care workers are women 59% people of color, 25% immigrants. We pay our other heroes in America better than that. Career firefighters are paid $35 an hour or $70,000 a year. 96% are male, 76% are white. Police, very similar, $34.50 an hour median salary just over $69,000 a year. 85% are male, 66% are white. I, I, I wanna be clear, I'm not calling corporate leaders racist. They are not, they are not doing anything intentionally to disadvantage women or people of color or immigrants. The fact is that the nature of endemic sexism and racism renders their intentions irrelevant. It is baked in,
0: baked into the business practice.
2: Yes, baked into the assumptions, business models, and it is part of. And I call attention to this in the article. It's it's part of the you know no mission, no margin ethos that um, that you have to satisfy uh, if you don't have shareholders. If you're if you're you know if you're a nonprofit you still have to satisfy the bond-rating agencies. And so it's either the markets and the shareholders or the bond-rating agencies, and the, the managers and the corporate executives do not perceive that they have the ability, that they have the freedom of paying their lowest-paid workers a living wage. They do, they could, but not in the current ecosystem or environment of American health care.
0: What would it take? What would leadership have to decide to do to make a change?
2: Well, it would be uncomfortable, let's be clear. You know, on this very podcast, a compelling conversation point about diversity, equity, inclusion pointed out that real change, authentic change will be uncomfortable. And if we don't, if we're not willing to be courageous, this is just, you know, not going to change the status quo its it, 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 the, the efforts are earnest but they will be ineffectual uh, what we need to do is to is to accept as a first principle that everyone employed by us should be paid a living wage that 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 should be inviolate right, and flex around that. If that's a core design principle, then you flex around that. So one way of doing that would be, wouldn't it be amazing if the, uh, let's, I'll just say CEOs for simplicity, but let's say the CEOs of all of the major large healthcare systems went to CMS, to Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and petitioned for a new condition of participation in Medicare and Medicaid, that required healthcare corporations to pay their lowest workers a living wage per some metric, let's say the MIT living wage calculator. Right. And if it was a condition of participation, let's say you know starting in 2022, this will be a, a, a condition of participation. Then you you have a level playing field that the markets uh, would all be there would be not a market advantage to not doing it because you couldn't be even enter the market in not doing it. Uh, and so that would force changes in other places within healthcare. care perhaps uh, executive compensation would have to be rebalanced with the median salaries uh, within the organization uh, there, there would be have to be other adjustments but if that was the case then the bond rating agencies would also have to get to ingest that change, and and we again be competing on a level playing field. I, you know, this is going to sound simplistic. I know to a lot of the C suites, but I, I will defend the principle that as a first principle, everyone that we employ must be paid a living wage. The world will not stop, so we're we're at a true crisis. Actually, I I think I've lost count of how many crises we're currently living through, but. <laughs> Covid is a crisis. Even just that, um, endemic sexism and racism are crises. Uh, at this time of crisis, uh, there is this opportunity to to look afresh at the status quo and 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 invite or at least, you know, explore radical changes. Um, the covid it, it it has made it inescapably clear that part of the persistence of this pandemic is because direct care workers aren't paid a living wage, uh, are often part-time workers, have to work at two or three facilities mm-hmm. like nursing homes uh, to make ends meet. They go home and they live in, in close quarters, uh, often sharing rooms and one bathroom and on and on and on and on and on, right? And they take public transportation. Right. And if you look, you know, the, the data is that about 40% of American deaths have occurred in nursing homes from COVID. Um If you dig deeper, you'll find that um, many of those outbreaks have been unwittingly, and I would say innocently, uh, transferred from one place to another by the direct care workers. It's not their fault, but that's been part of perpetuating this pandemic. Uh, It's not right, and there are solutions to this.
0: Absolutely. Ira, these are important ideas to talk about, and I hope that as they bounce around the C-suite and elsewhere, that you'll keep us in the loop and come back
2: and talk some more about it. I'd, I'd be delighted to do so. I appreciate you calling attention to this article and to this topic. Uh, I, I, it needs to get full attention so that we can wrestle with it, the situation, and and you know move toward a durable solution.
0: In closing, I'm wondering if you would. Read the conclusion of the essay.
2: I'm um, sure. Be pleased to. Unless and until we stop making excuses for our mistreatment of the least powerful among us, the healthcare industry will be unable to own its ignominious contributions to endemic racism and sexism that have been part of sustaining this pandemic. This statement is at once an indictment and confession. No individual of seniority and years in healthcare can credibly deny complicity, if only in our acquiescence to the status quo. If we are to authentically address issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, we must cut the chains of margin-driven care and model the values we espouse. Only then will we be able to chart a course to a more healthy and equitable future. There is an H word for healthcare company leaders who call their frontline caregivers heroes while neglecting to protect their health or pay them a living wage. Hypocrites.
0: Ira Biok is the founder and chief medical officer of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. His essay, Heroism and Hypocrisy, appears in the Journal of Palliative Medicine's November issue. You can find a link to the piece on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Ira, thanks for talking with me and thanks for writing the piece. You're very,
2: very welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to the Hear Me Now podcast, a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on the web at instituteforhumancaring.org. Again, we want to invite you to share with us your strategies for coping with the upcoming COVID winter. Drop us an email at humancaring@providence.org, and please include a phone number we can use to reach you. Hear Me Now stories are edited by Allison Jakes and Mike Addis and produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. We had production help this week from Carrie Kilpatrick-White and Crystal Ashton. Research librarians include Heather Martin, Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakhta, and Sarah Viscuso. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins, inviting you to join us for the next episode of the Hear Me Now podcast and to subscribe wherever you get your audio on demand. Thanks for listening. Be well.